This is the O'Reilly Programming Podcast. I'm Jeff Blyle. Our guest today is Ben Evans, co-founder and technology fellow at JClarity. He helps organize the London Java community, and he's a Java champion, Java One rock star, and the co-author of the forthcoming O'Reilly book, Optimizing Java, Practical Techniques for Improved Performance Tuning. We'll talk with Ben about Java performance, the upcoming release of Java 9, and Java communities. Enjoy the show. We're happy to be joined by Ben Evans to talk Java. And in addition to Optimizing Java, the book Ben is co-authoring with James Goff and Chris Newland, which will be out by the end of the year. He's also a presenter of the video courses Introduction to Java 8 and Practical Scala for Java Developers and the Learning Path Beginning Java 2nd Edition. All of these can be accessed through Safari, O'Reilly's technology and business learning platform. Go to safaribooksonline.com to find out more. Hi, Ben. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Jeff. Well, Ben, we'll we'll start with performance, basically the topic of your book, Optimizing Java. You say at the outset of the book that there's no magic go faster switches for the JVM and no tricks to make Java run faster. So um, so what are there? While there's no magic, there are best practices, right? Oh, absolutely. It's sometimes said that there are no royal roads in certain sciences. And that's kind of the case in performance as well. Uh, And not to give too much away, but actually describing it as though it was a science experiment is not too far from the truth. Java is, is quite a complex beast, and the runtime environment has effects in it which make it difficult to reason about directly. So instead of which, if we treat it as uh, experimental science, then we can use statistical techniques and, and measurement and just good old-fashioned empiricism to actually try to draw the results and the conclusions that we want. Well, can you give an example of perhaps a, a common Java performance problem that a developer is likely to encounter that maybe can be helped by this scientific approach? So let's let's think about something like garbage collection, for example. It's one of the big topics in, in Java performance. And uh, uh, what a lot of people don't understand about it is that there are different competing concerns. So you might want to, I don't know, people talk all the time about pause time and, oh my God, we can't have the application stop for very long. But what they don't realize is that for for applications that are are presenting to human beings rather than other machines, humans actually have a a relatively long tolerance for pause time. So paying too much attention to to a concern which which isn't necessarily that important can can take you completely down the wrong path. And um, one of the, the things that a performance engineer needs to realize is what actually matters to their application. What of the competing concerns actually is the most important to them? And that's not always the same answer, and it's not always the answer that people might might think if you if you ask them without them having thought about it. Are there other kind of core Java performance topics that that aren't understood as well as they should be? Well, I, th- I think, and, and this is something we talk about extensively in the book. Uh, developers and human beings in general often suffer from some quite serious cognitive biases. And developers, you know, we, we tend to think that we're the center of the universe. We, we think that our code and the, the thing that we've written is the most important thing in a whole system. And quite often, that's not the case. You know, modern software systems are in, incredibly complex. You know, you have operating systems, you have the JVM itself, you have the code you write, but you also have external systems and all of the things that you might need to communicate with to make your application work properly, you know, authentication and authorization, databases, other services, wh- whatever it is that you're communicating with. So, so sometimes I think it's very easy for developers to place too much emphasis on their own code without thinking about the system as a whole. 
Are there any things? Are there any things that can be identified that, that you can identify as trends regarding optimizing performance? The first thing to realize is is that um, the performance has never been a, a static subject. We're, we're in a kind of a strange position because we're now effectively um, entering the post Moore's law era. I mean, I think I think everyone is is kind of agreed now that that the incredible and unprecedented period of time that Moore's law represents has kind of come to an end. Mm. Um, and what that means for software engineers is we've kind of been free riding. The hardware engineers have been buying lunch for us for 50 years. And now we have to deal with the fact that they've they've stopped buying lunch. So I think it was Martin Thompson who who said that um, because of this trend in Moore's Law, that if you take an, an unoptimized application, with very little effort, you can do quite a lot to tune it. I mean, his his figure, and it's, I think it's slightly bombastic, but he says that you know there are potentially three orders of magnitude better performance to be had just by simple tuning, which is, of course, an incredible amount of slack to have in your applications. But but that is, um, at one and the same time, it's, it's the really good news about performance, but it's also the bad news. The JVM has been a very forgiving environment, and there is a, a lot of headroom there. And so with a small amount of effort, you can get much better results out of an untuned application. The problem is that the more you need to squeeze out that last drop of performance, that last mile is very difficult. So there's real diminishing returns here. It's easy to do a certain amount of tuning, but the question is how far do you need to take your, your performance? Let's talk about measuring Java performance numbers. In the book, you caution against micro-benchmarking. Can you say a little bit more about that? Oh, absolutely. Um, a, a favorite topic of mine. Um, so, so with micro-benchmarks, they are one of those things that they are, they're intellectually challenging, they're interesting to think about, but what do they really tell you? You know, sure, you get a number and you, you get to feel some satisfaction that you've measured some small aspect of Java performance. But really, the um, the performance of software systems as an aggregate is just that. It's an aggregate. The joke I sometimes make is, if you want to measure the specific heat capacity or the surface tension of a bucket of water, you don't start from the quantum mechanics of individual water molecules. And yet, micro-benchmarks are just that. They are you know, they are so incredibly low level, and it, it's not immediately apparent that they have any impact or any relevance to the behavior of an overall system uh, when considered as a whole. I mean, for, for example, and this is this is not just Java, but Java is a, a classic example of it because of the complexity and the, the emergence that the um, the layers of software represent. I think just a, a week or two ago, uh, Google announced that they were retiring their Octane benchmark because they, uh, Octane, for people who don't know, is a JavaScript benchmark for, very, for, for, for measuring essentially micro-benchmarks of, of JavaScript performance. Um, what Google had found is that browser manufacturers and, and website uh, owners were optimizing for the Octane benchmark. And when they actually compared what it did to overall experience and overall performance, they found that in almost all cases, optimizing for the benchmark harmed overall user experience. So it's not just me that says this. It, it, there, there is very clear evidence um, that over-optimizing for micro-benchmarks is actually harmful, uh, and it, it doesn't suddenly unlock magic extra performance uh, like some people seem to think it does. So, Ben, let's move on to a discussion of what might be coming up in Java 9. We're looking at uh, September 2017 now, correct? Yeah, yes, that's correct. So, um, so Mark Reinhold uh, announced just a, a week or so ago the date would be moving out potentially to, um, to the end of September. And, and and look, I, I think this is a this is a good thing. Um, it's it's showing that uh, the reality of the situation. The reality of the situation is is that this is an imperfect solution, and people are trying to do the right thing and are trying to make a compromise that everyone can live with. 
Um, is this going to be perfect? No, of course not. Uh, is it is it going to be the right thing for the platform? Well, we are in a situation now where we have to take some pain, and that's 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 the reality. I mean, if we if we are actually going to have a situation where we we properly encapsulate and modularize the internals and, and keep people out of things which they ultimately really shouldn't be accessing, then you know we've had 20 years on the platform so far it's time for the piper to be paid we have to do something to um to improve the situation and the underlying underlying tech in a way which allows the vm implementers and the the people who are are, are looking after the platform to be able to evolve and be able to change the internals without affecting the outside world the fact that every non-trivial java platform makes use of some misc unsafe i, I try to make a list of, of those platforms and those those frameworks that don't use unsafe it's a very short list. I think I've got JUnit, maybe TestNG on it, and, and everybody else does. So, so look, at some point, if, if you are actually going to have a position where, where those uh, APIs can be changed and those, those internals can be, can be worked on, somewhere along the line, there, there has to be uh, a break with the past and there, there does have to be uh, enforcement of, of better encapsulation. Um, but it, that's not to say it won't be painful. I'm, I'm sure it will be. Well, Ben, can you say a little more specifically about Jigsaw, the, the Java platform module system. What's Jigsaw supposed to accomplish and why do you think there's been some resistance to it? I, I think that Jigsaw has unfortunately suffered from it meaning different things to different people. Uh, now, you can see Jigsaw as an attempt simply to modularize the JDK itself. And taken in that light, that would in itself have been an ambitious project. Uh, and what's been delivered and what may well yet become Java 9 delivers that. But the problem is, what do you do about things which, which aren't part of the JDK? In the Java world currently, we have um, basically Maven, uh, which is what I think the majority of Java projects will use for their, their library-level dependencies. So the distinction we're drawing is between one where, where you have the JDK itself, which boots up, uh, and that basically is what, what's currently contained in RT.jar, and that is the Java runtime. But of course, you know, the, the needs of your application don't end there. So then you have the user-level class path, as it currently is, which contains, you know, if you need a JSON library or you need database compatibility or you need to, to talk to some RESTful service or all the other libraries that you, you, you also need are loaded after the main JDK has bootstrapped itself, okay? So the question is, in your module system, what are you trying to do? Are you modularizing the JDK itself or are you providing a general-purpose module system to replace and upgrade what is currently done in the class path, but also can handle the JDK as well? That's the question. The question is, which of those two things are you doing? And I, I hope I'm not going to be too unfair to Mark and the team here, because people have worked incredibly hard on this. I, I sort of feel that there was a certain amount of overreach here. My personal opinion is that, that the, the module system should have tried to, to do the relatively well. It's still ambitious but the less ambitious goal of just modularizing the JDK. And instead, given the timeframes, I think, I think they thought they had enough more time and enough resource to tackle the class path level modularity world as well. And I, I'm afraid that, that I, don't, I don't think that what's been delivered really accomplishes all of the goals that that, that, would, uh, that would need to be a success. Well, the kind of imperfections and the, the controversy about this particular issue aside, what do you do you expect Java 9 to make much of a splash in, in the community? Well, so, so here's the thing. There's, there's, there's several different aspects to this, and there's several, several moving parts here. 
So first of all, has it got to a point where the a lot of the pain has been taken and a lot of the uh, the internals have been encapsulated? Yes. Uh, have Oracle agreed a migration path to start figuring out what is in things like SunMisk Unsafe, um, which needs to be turned into a proper supported API? Yes. So that's those are both very good things. So a certain amount of the pain has been taken. Have we solved the general purpose modularity problem? Probably not. Can we live with what's here? Well, yes. But then the question becomes, what is there for developers? What is there for, for people running Java 9, which is in 9, to encourage them to upgrade? And there are a couple of things, but there's nothing desperately compelling, I have to say. It's 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 a fairly uh, fairly bare cupboard for for developers that actually want new productivity features. There's nothing of the order of of Java eight lambdas, for example. And to package for modularity is currently additional pain for well limited benefit at best. So what I expect to happen, and, and I you know, it, which is not to denigrate any of the engineering work that's been done. This was a difficult problem to solve. We knew it would have to be tackled at some stage, and they have taken the bull by the horns. But from the developer's point of view. Unless you have a compelling reason to upgrade to nine, I'm not sure why you would. Eight is obviously a very great release. Uh, it's a stable release. It is what I, I essentially think of as a long-term support release. I think there will be Java eight binaries running in production, especially at, uh, at installations which are potentially towards the conservative end of the spectrum. I think they will be running Java eight for ten years plus from now. But then, but then the question is, what about Java ten and Java eleven? Beyond, yeah, what's, what's, what, what is next for Java and, and the JVM? Well, well, absolutely. And this is, this is why 9 is necessary. You take the pain now to free up the engineering and the implementations team to make some bold and radical changes, which I, I, I believe, you know, if, I can, if I read Oracle and uh, the Sun engineers, um, pre- previous to Oracle correctly, I do not believe we will ever see a backwards incompatible version of Java. I believe backwards compatibility is a first-class concern, and I don't think that, that we will ever see a breaking change. So if that's true, and it might be and it might not be, but that's my reading of it. If that's true, what it means is you have to have the ability to evolve the internals without breaking anything else. And that's that's what 9 does. So, so it, what it now means is that in Java 10 and Java 11, there will be the possibility to deliver some quite radical new features. And by this, I mean things like enhanced generics, which which Brian Getz has been working flat out on. Um, and, and enhanced generics basically s- solves some of the problems of, of, uh, of type erasure. It also deals with the problems that you can't have um, collections uh, over generic, over primitive types, only over reference types. It also solves the problem of what are called value types. Now, a value type could be something like let's say, a, a point in a coordinate space with X, Y, and Z coordinates. These days, as it currently stands, that would have to be an object type. It would have to be a, a, a reference type which had three, three separate fields on it. There would be no way to, to have the equivalent of a C-struct, for example. Java's, Java's has an intention to, to produce value types at some stage, and the value types would behave well, in, a, in a more sophisticated and more advanced way, but they would they would be the equivalent of structs in C and C++. So, so all of those things, in order to get to them, first of all, you have to stabilize the implementation and get to a point where you can you can change things internally without without affecting uh, existing programs. So, I, I guess nine is is the stepping stone to to a future. But it would not surprise me at all to see a world where 
very few people make the jump from eight to nine, and lots and lots of people go from straight from eight to ten. We mentioned at the outset that you're very involved in the London Java community, a very successful community. And, and before I ask you about some specifics about your involvement, can can you kind of give um, those of our listeners who perhaps don't have much experience with communities uh, a sense of what happens at community meetings? Okay. So so every community is different, but I think the first and most important thing to say is is if anyone is out there listening and, and who doesn't have a lot of experience with community, just get involved. Uh, even a small community can have a disproportionate impact. And in fact, that's one of the, the parables and one of the lessons of, of open source is that a small committed group of people actually have a uh, an ability to punch far above their weight. You know, one of, the, one of the principles and one of the great ideas in open source is you should write software to scratch your own itch. If there is something which is bugging you and it's not right, write some software to fix it. And that is the essence of a really good technical community to um to just have a, a, a even a small group of you that can come together, uh, you you find that that actually you can you can do more as a group than you can as individuals. Well, talk about your involvement and experience uh, with the London community. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of interesting. I um I first started to get involved with the the London community in two thousand and nine, so coming up eight years ago. And I'd, I'd previously been involved in other tech communities as well, but I. Um, I went to the, the DevOps conference in Belgium because my uh, my then employer, Deutsche Bank, sent me there. And while I was there, I met some people from the London community and they said, you know, look, we're running a lot of events. You should come and get involved. So so I did that. And I met uh, Martin Verberg, who is the, the co-leader of the, the London Jar community. And it was with him I, I wrote my first book. Mm-hmm. And later on, of course, we went on to found a business together. So it, the, the, the London Jar community, the LJC, has been, you know, a big part of my life. It's it's played uh, a huge role. First of all, in my development as a as a professional and as a as a speaker, but also as a writer and in in many many aspects of my career, and my my professional life, it has been you know um, the goose which laid golden eggs. It just just keeps on giving. So I, I think it's um, it's true that a good community will will, will you know, provide a real real asset to uh, to your career if it's uh, if it's approached right. Yeah, and the London community is considered one of if not maybe the most successful community out there why do you think that is we we are i think you know one of the one of the more fortunate and one of the uh, the more influential of the the global communities um, i should of course also give a huge shout out not only to um so java who are the brazilian community um, but also to a, a number of the uh, the French communities. So the, there are a number of, of, of French jugs, who, and they, they kind of have a, a network which deals with the the francophone world. Uh, and they are also one of our one of our peers and one of the, the very very successful groups as well. I think we are successful for a number of reasons. Firstly, because we have had a uh, a dedicated sponsor uh, who has taken care of so many things for us over the years. Um, and the, the the other co-leader uh, Barry Cranford, who, uh, who who provides all of that sponsorship for the LJC, we have had I think several factors to, to our success. Firstly, that we've had a strong leadership team, and that that role has been broadened out to include a lot of people. One of the things about successful long-term community management is this need to to understand that people are going to go through different phases and stages in their life. Yeah. Some people. You know, are not going to be able to maintain the same level of commitment indefinitely. People have children; they change jobs. You know, they move house. Um, all sorts of other things happen, so that their their level of, of commitment can can fluctuate and vary. But if you have a large enough um, leadership team, 
uh, and especially one who, who biases towards action and getting things done, if someone needs to take a back seat for six or 12 months or even disappear for a few years and come back you know, three or four years later, you can accommodate that, providing you, you actually do have a steering committee uh, and a large enough group of people to actually run the events. The second thing is about critical mass. You need to have a certain amount of events and get people to come and to, to keep the conversation going. If the, 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 the community um, falls too far out of people's minds, they'll forget about it. But instead, if you can you know, run an event every, every month or every two weeks or, well, in the LJC's case, we, we run events pretty much every week. People feel, don't feel the need to come to everything, but they, just, they, they, they know that it's there and it's kind of kept alive in the back of their minds. And they can pop in and just come to an event when they want to and when they have space in their diary. Well, let's talk about some of the things you're involved in now. You mentioned just a couple of minutes ago Martin and the business you co-founded, which is J Clarity, and you're still involved there as a fellow and on the board. Um, what, what's what's happening at J Clarity now? Well, it's kind of an interesting time for us because we um, we have been preaching the gospel of uh, of machine learning for for Java performance and uh, producing products which which provide some deep insight into Java applications and Java performance for a long time. And, uh, well, the good news is I think the market has uh, has finally caught up to our thinking. Now, the bad news, of course, is that now means that there's more people in our space. But that's okay. So, you know, it's a, it's a high-class problem to have, as as I like to say. So, so, so basically, we... we um, we're just rolling out some new products now. We we have a um, a very deep Java garbage collection analyzer, which we call Sansom, which enables you to monitor either an individual JVM or a whole cluster. And we can provide you with with really deep analytics. So, for example, people might have a problem where they they have JVMs which stall and go into full GCs. Now we can see that coming. We we have um, machine learning which can analyze that data and tell you that JVM is about to stop. So, of course, that gives you all kinds of, of options. If you don't want that to happen, you can have a cluster and you can just take that machine out of uh, out of rotation and so forth. So we provide you with the insight and the analytics, which, uh, as far as I'm aware, nothing else on the market is capable of doing because we've, well, in some ways, we, we've kind of scratched our own itches. The, the, the tooling is stuff that we wrote and based on uh, the need to service clients and to deal with, with performance uh, for services engagements. So we wrote the tools that we needed ourselves and then realized that actually we could almost externalize our thinking and provide that insight and that tooling directly to our customers, which is, of course, the only way to, to scale a services proposition. And you've also had the opportunity to do some work regarding the uh, financial services industry. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that and, and especially kind of how Java is involved in, in what you're doing there? Absolutely. Um, so I was... Um, I realized today that it's it's almost exactly 13 years since I, I started working in the financial services industry. And the reason I, I know that is because about 13 years ago, I, I, I just started working at, at Morgan Stanley. And one of my first jobs was, well, just a little tiny thing. There was a company called Google, and they were about to do that IPO. And my first job pretty much out the gate at Morgan Stanley was working on the performance analysis for Google's IPO. Yeah. How'd that work out? Well, of course, you know, I had to sign the form which said I would not buy any Google stock because I, you know, I'd worked on the deal. So I did not get to buy any Google stock, <laughs> but I hear it went pretty well for them. How does everything you've, you've worked on throughout your career uh, on Java fit in there? And here's one of the things which I think sometimes gets lost in the tech press is that the tech press is always interested in the hot new thing. But the reality is that we have had an exponentially growing market for software 
um, which kind of mirrors Moore's law. But I think people forget just how much tech there really is out there. So the hot new thing is is cool, but in absolute terms, it really doesn't necessarily account for all that much. I mean, I, I was reading some analysis. I think it either from um, from Forrester or, or maybe Redmonk um, about the size of the Scala community. And you know, if you look, if you read the tech press, the Scala community is it's the hot new thing. And and I think the the, the figure was that they think that the, the size of the Scala community has now stabilized, you know, at around about a hundred thousand developers. Okay. Well, you know, a hundred thousand developers—that's great. That's loads of people using your language. That is a, a successful programming language. But if you put it in context, that's one percent of the size of the Java community. And the Java, the size of the Java community is a conservative estimate, ten million developers. So. You know, it, yes, the hot new thing is interesting, but there is a case for boring architecture and and relatively stable and boring mainstream technology, and that's that's what I see Java as. And I'm you know I'm not intending to insult the language here, but you know, James Gosling himself, when describing it, says Java is a blue collar language. Java is designed for working programmers. It's designed for for long term investment by enterprises and businesses into a technology stack which is going to be stable and is going to be around for the long term. It's not, you know, the, the, the new shiny thing, but it's not supposed to be. And I sometimes think that developers, you hear people talk and, you know, pontificate on Hacker News and Reddit and what have you, and they'll say things like, a language needs new feature X, Java needs X. But what that doesn't convey is that it's not the language which needs those new features. Because uh, all of us as developers and technologists, we're all on our own intellectual journey. We're all learning about you know, new things and potentially people who, who, who want to go down this path uh, about a deeper sense of, of what languages consist of and about how programming works. So it's not that the, the language has failed to move on. It's that we've changed. And it's really the developer and it's us that require new features, not, not necessarily the language. It's more about our own intellectual journey and where we are on that than it is about the language itself. Well, again, Ben Evans, it's been a pleasure, and thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Jeff. It's been great. Thanks for listening. We'll have links to Ben Evans's books, articles, videos, and learning paths in the show notes that accompany this episode. If you like this podcast, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or TuneIn so you never miss an episode. For the O'Reilly Programming Podcast, I'm Jeff Blyle.